Welcome to this podcast on psychological safety, what leaders need to know. I'm Paul Boney, a managing partner with Whit Kiefer, where I have been practicing for more than 25 years as an executive search consultant. As this pandemic persists, we hope that you and those around you continue to stay well. For the many of you who are frontline healthcare workers and leaders, or who are educators and administrators, or who are responsible for large groups of employees, we feel privileged to have you listening in today and taking time out of your day. You will find this podcast to be extremely relevant if you're a leader. These are times of great psychological stress and emotion within our work lives. It's important to pay attention not only to your own emotions and feelings, but also those of the people around you and to create environments that are safe and productive where others know you are helping attend to their well being. As one of our speakers today says, it's important to feel comfortable being imperfect in an imperfect world and to help others feel the same way. Let me bring in my colleague, Michelle Johnson, a principal with our firm, who will introduce our speakers. Thank you, Paul. This podcast is courtesy of Whit Kiefer and CMA Global, a team of PhD business psychologists who offer executive assessment, onboarding, coaching, implicit bias training, and other services through Whit Kiefer's Leaderverse suite of solutions. CMA is represented today by two fabulous speakers, Jennifer Nguyen, PhD, and Ashley Parker, PhD, experts in the field of leadership psychology and on the topic of psychological safety. Jen and Ashley will focus on a few key things, including understanding what psychological safety means and why it is critical in the workplace, how leaders use concepts of psychological safety to help those around them and to become better leaders, and conversely, what might get in the way of psychological safety, preventing you from becoming the leader you want to be. Paul and I believe you will learn and grow from this podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll now turn things over to our speakers. A big thank you to Paul and Michelle for that warm introduction and for the great partnership that we have with our friends at Whit Kiefer. Ashley and I are very excited to talk about this topic today. Thank you for listening, and I'll hand it over to Ashley to get us started. Great. Thank you, Jen. I'm eager to discuss something that I think really matters. I think it's mattered for a long time, um, but has never been more important in light of our current context. Um, I'm sure nobody needs me to tell them how stressful it has been this past year. Um, we've encountered, obviously, a public health crisis, um, financial instability, um, really important attempts to attain racial justice in our society. And it is important as we frame this discussion around building inclusive work environments, it's important to acknowledge that those things that are happening, you know, out there, those things affect us as people and we bring them with us to work. And so our ability as leaders and colleagues, as, you know, key contributors and organizations to connect with one another as people, to support one another in all of our complexity and uniqueness. That is what best practice and research, and frankly, just my internal sense of morality and ethics really lends itself toward. And so we wanna acknowledge that it's been stressful and that stress makes the, this topic even more important. 
right? Establishing psychological safety where people can come to work and feel comfortable being imperfect in an imperfect world matters. Um, so in light of that context, let's talk about what our goals are for today. Um, we want to leave this conversation having some really tangible action steps of how to apply what we know from research around leadership and developing and sustaining psychological safety. We want to translate that into action. And we have some great tips of things that you can start doing even today in order to start contributing to a psychologically safe workplace. Um, like a lot of things in psychology, some of what we discuss might seem obvious. It might seem simple. And as we go through, I might challenge you that when something is simple, there's frequently a lot that might get in the way of really doing it. And so as we go through, think not about just how simple it seems, but what might be getting in the way and how we can address that. Um, also, I would not be a psychologist if I did not draw your attention, at least at some point, to your emotions. So what we're going to be talking about today, it makes sense that it would elicit some type of emotion, whether that be, you know, you know energy, motivation, drive to change things. Uh, it could be sadness, disappointment, or frustration if there's a gap between where you want to be with respect to psychological safety and where you are. Whatever that emotion is. Jen and I would recommend that you identify it and really direct it toward making meaningful change. And that actually, to spoiler alert, one of our key tips here is going to be about more attentiveness to your own and others' emotional experiences. So use this as an opportunity to do that very thing. Um, I love uh, Maya Angelou. Um, she is an incredible contributor, I think, not only to literature, but to um, thought around leadership, um, frankly. And she has this quote that I think applies a lot to our conversation today. Uh, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. And all you have to do is think about the key people in your life, either on the positive side or the negative side, that have made you feel strongly. And I think you can agree that that quote really resonates. So let's dive in. Um, you know, we talked about how in order to have an inclusive work environment, we need to have psychological safety. People need to feel that they can be open and honest. Um, we want to be open and honest about things that aren't always easy to talk about. Um, racism, power, equity right, um, how we can contribute to more diverse, equitable, and inclusive environments at work. And so let's just take a moment, Jen, if you want to lead us through a quick self-assessment before we dive in more to what psychological safety really is. Absolutely. This is a point where after you hear the self-assessment, you may want to pause the recording, get out a piece of paper and pen or pencil, I write in cursive because of my age. I understand others don't do that anymore. So you can write <laughs> in script or you can print it. And we'll check back in on this later in the podcast. For the quick self-assessment, when you're doing this, as Ashley mentioned, you, this may be a point at which you start to experience some reaction. As she said, it could be a positive reaction. It could make you feel engaged or motivated. It could make you feel frustrated. 
uh, it could lead to some embarrassment, shame, disappointment in yourself or your team. All of those things for now, just notice them. Just notice what it brings up in you and maybe even note that in your notes. So for the quick self-assessment, if you've got your piece of paper and writing instrument handy, or if you're tech savvy, you've got it ready to type there on your screen, here are the questions you might consider about yourself as a leader and about the dynamics that you see on your team. Do people ask for help when they need it? Do people feel comfortable raising difficult issues and concerns? Do they feel comfortable disagreeing? Is it disagreement encouraged regardless of power? So the rank in the organization, the seniority of a person, their age, their gender, their race, any of those other visible characteristics or organizational dynamics. Do your teammates ask questions about things they don't know or understand? Do they feel comfortable saying, I don't know, I need more information? How frequently do you see people giving and receiving feedback? Are errors reported with honesty? How are mistake, mistakes handled? Do they blame others or is it more of a learning focused approach? When you look at your team meetings, what does the participation look like? Is it the same people that participate frequently, or does it seem like all of your team members are invited? And finally, think about the level of respect and appreciation that you see. Does everyone on the team feel equally appreciated and respected? Take a moment to write these things down, pause the recording, notice what comes up in you. I also am a fan of Maya Angelou, and there's another quote that I would ask you, and we promise we won't just do quotes the whole time of other people, but I think this <laughs> is one to be thinking of as you take these notes. It's one I've had to remind myself of in this work. Do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, you can do better. So if you recognize opportunities for improvement as you write this, that's okay. That's the purpose of doing the exercises, just to highlight where those areas might be. And I'll hand it back to you, Ashley. Great. So, so let's dive in. So what is psychological safety? Psychological safety is the shared belief among members of a team that the team is a safe place for interpersonal risk taking. So some of those questions that Jen just asked, those reflect in many cases, interpersonal risks, right? Being forthcoming about making mistakes, disagreeing, and sometimes disagreeing with people who may have more formal authority or power over you. Giving honest and direct feedback. Giving honest and direct feedback. Asking for help if you feel overextended. People who embrace and who feel psychologically safe on their team are open to saying, I messed up, I am imperfect. They don't feel a need to have this, what has frequently been described as a mask, right, of perfection or self-sufficiency. There is the shared expectation that people will bring up ideas, even ideas that may initially not be popular, that they'll say, I messed up, I don't understand, I have a concern. Um, there's been a great deal of research led, first and foremost, by a researcher out of Harvard Business School. Her name is Amy Edmondson, and she points to a broad study that was conducted by Google 
that really had a very open-ended question, what makes teams effective? They looked at a variety of characteristics and variables about teams over the course of several years to better understand what differentiates those top performing teams from those other performing teams. And what they found is that the most important variable that drove effectiveness among their teams is psychological safety. Psychological safety was more important than even the expertise or unique skills and abilities of the individuals on those teams. And how Edmondson and other scholars understand this is that, look, you can be bright, you can be exceptional with regard to your technical skill, you can have great ideas. But if you don't have a space where you can share those ideas, where that knowledge is not safe to promote, right, for fear of looking silly or um, appearing defiant, then you're not going to benefit from any of that expertise. Uh, and so suffice it to say, it makes sense uh, intellectually, but it's also been borne out in the research that psychological safety is critical for team effectiveness. Now, perhaps the last couple minutes you've been listening and you've been thinking to yourself, yeah, that sounds good, right? Uh, I would love to be able to share my mistakes. And, you know, that seems pretty easy. Just raise your hand and give another alternative belief. And yet what we find is that most organizations don't have the level of psychological safety that they want. And we're all pretty capable, smart, accomplished people. Why can't we get this? <laughs> Why aren't we where we want to be? And there are some really important reasons why. And we have to understand what those barriers are in order to address them. Uh, so there are really two main buckets of reasons that people may struggle to take those interpersonal risks. The first relates to just it being in a personal risk mitigation strategy. So let me tell you a little bit more. Um, I guess by, the, by definition, if you take a risk, <laughs> it's risky. <laughs> and what exactly are we risking? we're risking a sense of belonging and respect within our social group. And that is critically important to us as humans, right? We are built to interact with and engage with other people. And so to risk not being viewed in a positive light, to risk not being seen with respect or treated with respect, that shakes us to our core. And so it makes sense that in a variety of situations, an individual would opt for that less risky interpersonal strategy, right? I could ask the question, I could get the answer, but what if I look stupid? Not looking stupid is more important than the answer to that specific question. I'm gonna pick not looking stupid, right? I don't wanna look incompetent. So if I raise my hand and say, I made a mistake, sure, maybe I would help be contributing to whatever they're talking about psychological safety, but what if they think I'm an idiot and they don't assign me the projects in the future because they think I lack the skill? So we have to acknowledge that the reason people don't take interpersonal risks is because we need the support of one another, and it can frequently be difficult 
to do that um, without evidence that it's going to land well. Ashley, I am one of the owners and leaders at CMA, and when I listen to you talk, I think, okay, this makes perfect sense of the individual, why the individual would want a psychologically safe workplace. I can also get there if I'm on a team, why would I want my team to feel that way? Can you talk about some leaders might hear that and think, well, that makes sense to me in interpersonal relationships. I can understand why psychological safety might be important in my closer interpersonal relationships, my informal relationships, my family, my friends. If I'm leading a business, why? I heard what you said about some of the predictors of team performance, but isn't this a little soft? <laughs> it's interesting you say that. The researcher, Amy Edmondson, actually came upon the importance of this in her work with teams in healthcare. And what she found uh, was that teams with more psychological safety reported more medical errors and mistakes than teams with less psychological safety. And she is forthcoming and saying, uh, that's not the pattern I had anticipated. She eventually determined that it was not that more mistakes were happening on the psychologically safe teams, but that they were more likely to be surfaced. And this was critical for patient outcomes, right? There were fewer medical errors moving forward. There was less um, mistakes around um, administration of medication, right? When the nurse felt comfortable saying to the physician, hey, are you sure about this dosage? versus just going along to get along. And so when I think about your question about it being soft as compared to needing hard business outcomes, I think about the relevance in healthcare and how the ability of members of a team to raise their hand and say, I messed up, or I see something that's wrong, or I disagree, can literally be the difference between a good and a bad medical outcome. And to use very big examples, you need only look back to, you know, the challenger. There's evidence that there were people who knew but didn't feel comfortable to share their reservations about the challenger, right? And that didn't end well. I was thinking about Chernobyl and how there were people who knew that something was not right and they did not say anything. And so those are big glaring examples, but it's probably not hard to think within your organization about if somebody felt comfortable to express that things were going off the rails, how could we have avoided what is ultimately an incredibly costly error? So soft, I actually don't think of soft as having a negative connotation. Soft, yes, and incredibly important and relevant to business outcomes. Of course, that was a setup, but <laughs> and, <laughs> right, I, <laughs> um, and I think those are, thank you for giving those examples off the cuff. We didn't plan to talk about some of Brene Brown's work, but it makes me think about the difference between shame and guilt as well, that shame causes us to hide and guilt is more likely to help us change. And when we did that self-assessment, we talked about just noticing shame might be one of the emotions that comes up around this. And I think when there isn't psychological safety, I'm assuming there's a connection to more shame type behavior. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so my understanding of shame and guilt is that shame is the sense that I am bad. Guilt is the sense that I might have done something bad. And so as we will discuss moving forward, having that growth mindset, right, that I am not some finite, stagnant entity that is either good or bad, right? We're constantly learning and growing. And so, yes, I can absolutely see the parallels in shifting this onus from shame, right? I am bad to guilt. I did something bad. And that thing can be helpful because we're going to learn from it and do something differently in the future. Yes. Thank you. So we talked about the first big bucket of what gets in the way of taking interpersonal risks, and that's that individual risk mitigation strategy. The second big bucket relates to what's going on in your environment. So there are leadership behaviors that incentivize or disincentivize taking interpersonal risks, right? I think we've, well, I won't speak for everyone. I've been in rooms where I have seen leaders yell and blame and point fingers. And that tends not to encourage psychological safety. That sets a really harmful tone for the type of environment we're trying to cultivate. Uh, the research also indicates that rigid hierarchy also tends to undermine attempts to build and sustain psychological safety. Rigid hierarchies can be formalized. So, you know, we could all look at an organizational chart and see rigid hierarchy, but it also can be informal. So think about tenure among faculty or nurses that maybe they have the same role, but if somebody might have an informal position of power relative to the social group, and when you see those power differentials amplified, you see people taking fewer interpersonal risks. And then lastly, if you have taken an interpersonal risk and you got burned, right? You did raise your hand and you said, I don't understand. And then you heard after the meeting that other people were talking about how you don't do your job well, it would make sense that you're not going to take an interpersonal risk moving forward. And so acknowledging both those individual and contextual variables that complicate actually building and maintaining psychological safety is a critical component here. All that being said, right, there are lots of reasons why we don't take the interpersonal risks. But what Jen and I would say is that by doing that, you are really missing opportunities to develop inclusive workspaces, and you are not maximizing the ability of your team to be effective, right? So doing nothing to build or sustain psychological safety is worse than the potential risk of doing something. Let's talk about what you could do. There are some actions, some easy wins, and maybe if you have your list from your self-assessment in front of you, you can use that self-assessment to help you determine which of these make the most sense for you. And I think Ashley did a good job in the beginning of setting the expectation that this is an ongoing process. This isn't an easy win where you just check the box and you do these things and now everybody feels safe. The things that you can do, one of those is think about uh, there's 
the idea of staying curious, if you've heard this before. So if you find in yourself or in the team a tendency to look for ways to place blame or you may call this accountability, maybe cloaked under calling it accountability, one thing you might consider is can you switch that out for curiosity? So that would be one action to think about, just to self-evaluate. Are there places where we could start with curious instead? And that looks like asking questions, not leading questions. Tell us why you didn't get that assignment finished today. That would be more of a leading question, but truly questions. Are there areas of support or resources you might need here? That might be a question that's a true curious question. Social sensitivity and empathy, continuing to hone those skills certainly helps with this. Respect, always. Checking the things that you say and you do, it seems very simple, but am I doing things, these things from a place of respect? Ashley mentioned a little while ago the growth mindset, which we'll get into more, a little bit more depth of that. But looking into, am I approaching this from a place of trying to grow? And that has to do with treating mistakes as learnings. And then equality and conversational turn-taking. Ashley and I can talk a little bit about this. Even within CMA, we've been trying to practice this. We're psychologists. We have a lot to say. We have lots of opinions. There's 19 of us. When we all get together, <laughs> it tends to be a lot of talking over one another. And there are there is a wide continuum on our team of personalities. There are those who are more extroverted and comfortable speaking in large groups. And there are those who need time to process and think before they're able to formulate their opinion. And we've been watching in our own team that conversational turn-taking and inviting, and we've actually had to ask, what's comfortable for people? Do you want to be invited to speak up when, you, when we haven't heard from you? And there are a lot of differences in that. Ashley, any examples you want to share beyond that about our team? Yeah, so in order to reduce that power differential that we were talking about that can get in the way, Ensuring that everyone has a voice is important. And to Jen's point about our team, I experience when we get together, it's like a raucous family dinner, right? Yeah, so exactly. Sometimes for the more introverted individual, be more challenging to make sure you're getting equal airtime. And so within our team, it has been helpful to one, acknowledge that. This may seem obvious. But the first step is to do an inventory, right? Look at the lay of the land and say, is our issue that we have too many people who are eager to talk or that we have not enough people who are contributing? And once we figured out that we have a lot of opportunities and eagerness to discuss, it was about identifying how do we sensitize every team member to their role in helping to develop and sustain psychologically safe environments. How do we sensitize people to conversational turn-taking? Some people are more aware of it, others less. And so to Jen's point, bringing it up ahead of time and encouraging those folks who might be less likely to take the spotlight that we're eager to hear what they have to say has been helpful. So too has, um, I think silence can be powerful if used well. And so just creating a, a few more silences because sometimes people won't jump in in the first millisecond. They need a few seconds. And so enhancing our comfort with silence to encourage others to share has been important. 
And as we've said, it's an ongoing piece of work to do that. We may try something and it doesn't work. That team member says, I didn't like being called out, right? I would rather it look like this. So think of this as something that you're doing on an ongoing nature, not a one and done. Let's dive a little bit deeper into those actions, give you a little bit more information on each of them. I mentioned the replacing blame with curiosity as the first one. These are likely going to be things that you have heard before. I don't think we're going to give you anything that's new content for you. Just a reminder. And one of those reminders is having the willingness to assume positive intent. Most people aren't waking up in the morning and thinking, how can I mess up? Or how can I treat somebody poorly? Usually we only see that among sociopaths and they're not typically in the workplace. There is research that shows that blame and criticism pretty consistently escalate conflict. It does not get us to the intended goal. It results in more defensiveness, more disengagement. And if you can just pause to think about a time recently when this happened to you, when you brought something up and what you felt back was blame or criticism, and what response did that bring up in you? For me, I unfortunately am more sensitive than, than the average leader. It's something I'll work on in my leadership for the entire time that I lead others. And I know that when I feel criticized, my first response is defensiveness, embarrassment. I feel it in my body. And my response to that is not the best me. And so if you just think in yourself of what that has felt like in those situations, and did it get the meeting or the conversation to the outcome that was the best possible outcome, I'm, I'm guessing most of the time, no. There are people who are less sensitive, who are more tough-minded, and that doesn't bother them as much. But generally, that's the case. So the alternative to that would be, as I mentioned earlier, curiosity. I'm not sure what they're thinking. I'm not sure what their intent is. I'm not sure if there's more information here that would help me understand this better. I don't have all the information. That's the assumption that curiosity has, is I probably don't have all the information. Let me see if I can get more of it. And I believe in this person. I believe they have an intent to do well, to achieve, to get along. There is something called, you've probably heard of it before, the fundamental attribution error. And that error is when we find ourselves attributing people's mistakes or harmful actions more to who they are as a person than to their situation or context. But when we look at ourselves, we tend to reverse that. So we want to challenge that and use that curiosity instead. Ashley's going to talk to us a little bit more about active listening. So a key part of being curious is expressing that curiosity. And that's where active listening comes in. A few quick tips about active listening. Um, usually active listening is more than just hearing what people are saying, but being attentive to what their key message is, what their feelings and values are. So for example, if somebody says, you know, I'm so upset, this colleague really didn't hold up their end of the bargain. We had a project timeline and they were so disrespectful. They didn't communicate and it really left us in the lurch. I had to stay up all night last night working. There's a lot there. Um, you could reflect back and mirror and say, 
it sounds like your team member didn't hold up their end of the bargain and it left you holding the bag. You could also reflect back what their key value is. It's clear to me how much you care about doing your job well. And this obviously was frustrating to you, right? So I guess that was both their value and the feelings, right? Naming their feeling helps people to feel understood. Um, it can be helpful in active listening, particularly when you're trying to elicit more information, to ask what questions instead of why questions. So for instance, why didn't you send me that report by the time we'd agreed to? Could be rephrased as, what got in the way of getting that report sent by 6 p.m.? Um, think about how you can reframe really any why to a what question. It reduces people's defensiveness. It's less accusatory. One thing that gets in the way of cultivating the curious mindset of approaching active listening with a true eagerness to understand is a cognitive bias called naive realism. It is the unsubstantiated belief that we know and understand more than what we do, that we get it and other people don't, that we have a good sense of reality rather than what we truly have, which is a subjective and limited view of reality. So what I would urge you to do is that the moment you feel like you get it, I would say that's the indication that you may be succumbing to a cognitive bias of naive realism. And that is the signal to yourself that you need to pause, take a step back, acknowledge you are in, that you are fallible, right? That you do not know all, that there may be other data that matters and that your job in that moment is to collect that data. And your ability to collect that data, right, to learn from other people's subjective experiences is dependent on your ability to cultivate trust with them. And so active listening can be a great tool not only to help solve problems, but to develop that trust so that you can more effectively solve problems, right, so that people will share with you what they really think and feel, so that you can address concerns in the team. Knowing what we don't know I think is frequently a differentiator between those great leaders and those not as great leaders. To shift a bit here to our second tip around how to enhance psychological safety, it's about honing your social sensitivity and empathy. So knowing how you and others feel helps individuals to feel seen and heard and understood. And to loop back to our initial intro that we are people, right? We have complex experiences and needs that are outside our job descriptions. And our ability to understand people enhances our ability to be productive as teams. And so one easy way to hone your social sensitivity and empathy is to build your emotional vocabulary. Uh, I, in my early days in clinical psychology, I was a therapist and I had a patient who truly did not have an emotional vocabulary outside of good or bad. I would say, how are you feeling? Good. We would talk about some really intense experiences in his life. And I said, how did that make you feel? Bad. 
And so a lot of our work was in really fleshing out. Did you feel embarrassed? Did you feel sad? Did you feel belittled? And our ability to understand ourselves is frequently enhanced through language. So you can Google emotion wheel and you will get a ton of results um, that will help you build up that emotional vocabulary, which will help you yourself describe your emotional feelings and to help identify them in others. Like a plug <laughs> for the emotion wheel. I have printed it and laminated it in my house and it can help you not just at work. <laughs> I use it with my two daughters. I use it with my husband. So it, it really is a great resource. Look it up, print it out, use it. Highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. A quick note about um, vulnerability. So at this point you might say, oh, knowing how I feel and then telling people how I feel, those are two different things. And what I would say is that vulnerability is a key part of developing trust. And so being forthcoming and sharing what you think and how you feel is a powerful way to contribute to psychological safety on your team. And frankly, leaders, the onus is on them to take those interpersonal risks first. And so if you think to yourself, well, let me feel comfortable before I start sharing, I would challenge you there and say it, it actually is the other way around. You kind of have to start sharing and the comfort and the psychological safety is what will follow. With respect to empathy, consistently putting yourself in other people's shoes, right? How could this person be seeing things differently? It goes back for a moment to getting out of naive realism, knowing that you don't know everything and that your goal is to understand other people's experiences. Shifting now to the third of our five action steps, respect. Uh, respect subsumes a lot, but we think about respect in this way in terms of giving and receiving feedback. So we can only know so much about ourselves. We depend on others to let us know how we're doing, if our impact is the same as our intent. And so what we would encourage is that by giving and receiving feedback well, you will do a lot to build and sustain psychological safety on your team. We could talk for days, weeks about feedback, a few quick things. If somebody thinks enough of you to tell you directly something that you could improve upon, that is truly a gift. And the very first thing that should come out of your mouth is thank you so much for sharing that with me. And if you need more time to really work through the feelings related to that, then take that time. But keep in mind, it, it is an interpersonal risk for people to tell you something like that. And so you want to be grateful to them for that. When you're giving feedback, we want to focus on the situation so that we don't succumb to the fundamental attribution error. So we want to say, here was the situation. We want to talk about the behavior. Here's what I witnessed from you in terms of your action. I suspect your intent might have been this. However, the impact was that. This SBII model, Situation, Behavior, Intent, and Impact, has been disseminated by the Center for Creative Leadership and is a really helpful tool just to make sure that you stay focused on the action and how to give feedback in ways that people can hear.
Let's talk a little bit about growth mindset. We mentioned it earlier. Let's dive a little deeper into what that is. There is um, an idea with growth versus fixed mindset that if you're in the growth mindset, the focus more is on getting better over a period of time. That improvement is ongoing. I can change. Um, I can learn, pick up from the mistake, do better the next time. The fixed mindset is an evaluation at one point in time. How things are right now is how they will always be. And psychological safety is related to this in that it creates the confidence to take, as Ashley mentioned, those interpersonal risks. And by taking those interpersonal risks, it allows yourself and your coworkers to learn and focus on what are we trying to do together? How can we prevent future problems? versus self-protection. How do I keep from getting in trouble? How do I keep from getting yelled at? That's the worst case scenario. We don't see a lot of that, but it does happen. All of us know we're human beings. We make mistakes, right? You can, you can nod and smile at that part. Of course we know that, but it seems like sometimes we forget that. When we get into the fixed mindset, we forget that work is a learning process. There are going to be times when we take a step forward. Oops, that didn't work stop, figure out why it didn't work, and redo it. So we want to think about the complexity of that progress, that as we go forward, my goodness, right now, I think we're all experiencing this. In the beginning, some of us didn't even have our hair brushed when we got on video during the pandemic. <laughs> no <laughs> judgment, Jen. No judgment, no judgment. Myself in there. So this has been a great 2020, the year that we're in right now as we do this podcast has been a fabulous year for learning how to have a growth <laughs> mindset, hasn't it? That's uh, some silver lining if I ever heard it. Yeah. That's a silver lining, <laughs> right, right. So it is a consistent, ongoing reinforcement of, okay, we messed that up. What did we learn? How do we move forward? I have been so lucky in my career at CMA before uh, this year, I was a consultant there for 20 years where I became one of the owners and leaders. And I worked under two gentlemen, Dan and Joe. And one of the things I've always said that I appreciated most about their leadership was that I felt I could fail, tell them I failed, have a conversation about what I learned from it, and then it didn't get brought up again. And that was amazingly freeing. I would just add, Jen, to, to speak to the leaders, right, to, even to you, even as you've shared, you said, you know, I'm sensitive when I hear critical feedback, my gut is to become defensive, that that is an enactment. That's you practicing the type of vulnerability and growth mindset that we're describing. And so as someone who formally reports to you, <laughs> I can share with you that it's not only helpful for you to have a growth mindset about me and my learning and development, but we want to cultivate that it goes both ways, right? That you are imperfect. That if I had an expectation that you are going to knock it out of the park every single time, that I will be sorely disappointed because you are not a superhero. And so seeing that modeled by a leader is an incredibly compelling reason for me to do the same. Thank you for that. Yes. It's not easy. It's hard to do. It's, it feels scary. 
And Ashley mentioned that earlier, the interpersonal risk. It feels scary to do that. We do a lot of executive coaching in our practice, and it's a common thing that we hear. We'll hear people say, I'm afraid people are going to find out that I don't know what I'm doing as a leader, Mm -hmm. or I don't deserve to be here. And I think that's where the fear comes from, that if I say, Ashley, when you give me feedback, I feel defensive and I'm worried you don't like me and I get anxious and a whole bunch of things happen and I feel like my face turns red. Gosh, now I'm afraid you're going to think, well, what the heck is she doing in a leadership role? So that takes a lot of um, risk to do that. And I do think that once you start doing that, then it goes two ways and then people say, oh, okay, this is a comfortable space to do that. I can do that too. And it's amazing what you find. Then you actually find that you get more grace from people because you owned. Yes, I know I do that. You can tell me I do that. (laughs) (laughs) And we're all learning and growing. None of us have gotten there yet. (laughs) Right? I'm hoping one day it'll happen for me. (laughs) We are at a good place. I think our last tip was the conversational turn taking. I feel like Ashley and I probably covered that pretty well in our example. So we're at a good place. If you want to pause the recording again and relook at your self-assessment, And see if there's any of these tips that you think you can apply, given what you wrote in your self-assessment. We also tell people in coaching, please don't try to do too much at once. You'll get overwhelmed if you try to do, oh, gosh, I need to work on all five things. I'm going to try to do them all at once. Look at your self-assessment. See what really came up for you, what seems to be the the highest priority for you in your leadership, and focus on that one first and seek some feedback. When people quit smoking, the best technique they can use is to tell everybody around them that they've quit smoking because then somebody sees them out in the parking lot sneaking a cigarette and what do they do? They say, I thought you quit smoking. (laughs) So if you tell your team, we're going to practice equality and conversation taking and I'm going to try to facilitate more of that. I promise you'll get help and support from the team on that. Just to echo that, it is powerful in and of itself to acknowledge that this is important and that they may observe a few more interpersonal risks from you, and that you are doing that with intention to cultivate this type of environment. Um, Naming things that are frequently unstated is powerful. As psychologists, that's a good deal of our training, right? Recognizing what's going on and figuring out how to bring attention to that. Uh, And as a leader, if you can name that and express your intent and that you are going to be taking interpersonal risks, it can, help, it can help with that accountability mechanism, as Jen just said, but it in and of itself is a powerful way to say this matters to me. I'm attentive to this, and I'm going to make some deliberate choices uh, that will benefit us and our team. So let me circle back in my psychologist mode and ask how you're feeling. You might be feeling anxious disengaged, motivated, optimistic, whatever it is that you are feeling, direct that. We think about emotions as good or bad, and I don't think that's very helpful. Uh, It's better to really think about emotions as either helpful or not. And what makes emotions helpful is in how we direct them toward action. So what emotion do you feel? You can Google emotion wheel if you need some words. And how do you direct that productively toward enhancing your own insight and intent around your behaviors 
I know Jen has said this a couple times, and I will reiterate, it is hard. Just this morning, I got an email from a leader who had extended an invitation to members of her team to participate in a focus group that me and a colleague will be running to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she heard people said, we don't feel comfortable talking about that here. We feel like we're going to get penalized or what we say will be held against us. So the leader circled back and said, hey, this is the feedback we got when we tried to extend invitations for this focus group. And I'll be honest, my very first thought was, I'm glad to hear that they said something. That even though what they are saying is that we don't feel psychological safety, the fact that they said we don't feel psychological safety is powerful because the alternative and the one that frequently occurs is silence. And so finding even those seemingly small signs of evidence, right, that people are taking the interpersonal risk and rewarding that, saying, thank you so much for bringing that up. I recognize that this is an issue and the fact that you feel concern makes sense. We want to change things and do it differently and we need you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so any time that you can initiate this conversation and reward people for saying things that might be hard to say will help to build some momentum around psychologically safe teams at work. I was yeah. thinking as well, uh, at CMA recently, we've done work around anti-racism and we've had weekly discussions. And one of the things that we have said during those discussions is if you feel discomfort, use that discomfort. The discomfort is not, as Ashley said, don't put a label on it as being a bad thing that I feel discomfort. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. actually would indicate growth if there's discomfort. And I feel in this work around psychological safety, which is often connected, we're, we're not here today to talk about DEI topics, but it often, those are connected things, that if you did the, if you listen to this and did the self-assessment and you're feeling some discomfort, uh-oh, I'm not doing any of these things. Great. <laughs> Truly, that is great. That is step one. So don't see that as a negative. Really try not to put that value judgment on it if that's what you got out of this is, oh, no, I'm not doing any of these things well. I'm, I'm certain that many of us, when we read this list, have that reaction. Oh, no, I just think about my past week and I've had a miss on all five items, right? But thankfully, we're humans who learn and grow and adapt. And the first thing is insight. So hopefully this conversation has helped to direct your attention toward dynamics that maybe you weren't attentive to before. The next thing is intent, right? You have to want to change. That uh, my favorite and only psychology joke. Um, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb, Jen? <laughs> is it one? Yes. It's just one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And so if you have insight, if you have intent, the next thing is to translate that to action. And frequently that involves getting support. So we hope that we've shared a few ideas that get you energized around this, the evidence and just anecdotally, you know, we know that this really matters. And so in the service of 
developing effective teams and creating an environment where people want to come to work and enhancing feelings of inclusion. Directing your attention towards psychological safety is likely to be a worthwhile endeavor. I realize we didn't make a comment about phones and psychological safety. And for modern day, that's probably a tip we want to throw in there as well. I've noticed in our time on virtual work that it's even more obvious if someone is looking at their phone or doing their email. And I think, Ashley, we had a tip in there under one of them about if you are trying to create psychological safety to be thoughtful about those sorts of things as well, those distractions. Can you comment on that at all? Yeah, so in the domain of active listening, it's really active. <laughs> That's the active part. And so a good part of active listening is attention and being mindful of really focusing your attention, not only because you need to, because people frequently have a lot of complexity that is worth understanding, but also because even if you do feel that you could understand what people are saying while checking your text messages, it doesn't communicate the empathic regard for that person that you would want to as a leader. And so um, being clear about if you're expecting an important call prior to a meeting can be a way to kind of create space for those urgent needs. Um, but being mindful that in any given situation, you might be gaining something by responding to that call, but you might also be losing that connection with that person, that establishment of trust that is so important to active listening. And we're gonna assign homework as a wrap up, right? We wouldn't be good psychologists if we didn't give a piece of homework. I think for this one, when you look at your list, if there was something that jumped out at you that you wanna personally commit to after your self-assessment and after hearing those tips, we would suggest that perhaps you share that with someone, someone with whom you have psychological safety and ask them to give you ongoing feedback on that. So there's an accountability loop built in. It, we, we tend to find that it's more powerful if one, you can try to explain what you learned to someone else and two, ask them to hold you accountable for your commitment. My daughter is learning French from a native speaking French teacher and he said something that I didn't know. I'd never heard this before, but he said, Actually, if you can try to teach your family some French words, it will improve your French. And she has tried desperately, and we still are not speaking it well. <laughs> but I think that applies here as well. If you can try to explain some of what you learned to someone else, that might actually help you in your growth as well. Yes. Very grateful for your time and attention. I know there's a lot going on in the world um, and appreciate your investment and your team. Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wikiever.com to learn more about our expertise in leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikiever on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Wikiever. Wikiever makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Third-party materials or the contents of any third-party
from a site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of the Kiefer. The Kiefer assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. But Kiefer makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. But Kiefer expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast for the information presented in the